Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. Be sure to look for the Law Enforcement Today Radio Show all over social media. We're on Facebook. Look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. On MeWe.com, look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. On Twitter, follow L-E-T Radio Show P-O-1. On Instagram, follow L-E-T Radio Show Podcast. On Parlor.com, search for Law Enforcement Today L-E-T. On Rumble, look for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. And on Gab.com, search for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Again, our website is letradioshow.com. Hope to see you online soon. Calling us from New York, we have Tom Vinton on the phone. Tom is a retired FBI agent, also author of the book Sanctioned Treachery, Portrait of a Drug Informer, which you can find on Amazon. We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for being a guest on our Law Enforcement Today show. Very much appreciated. Okay, thank you. Uh, before we get into the details of your book, I want people to understand something. Tom is not Bobby Vinton. All right, same last name. And I would love for people to think that I'm not old enough to remember Bobby Vinton. I'll just say this. He was big when I was a little, little, little boy. <laughs> so that was a long time ago. You did a full career in the FBI, correct? Yes, uh, Bobby Vinton, actually one of my sons is that, has that name. So uh, to answer your question, yeah, I spent uh, 27 years in the FBI, 25 of those in the New York office. And you, you were big throughout the New England area, from what I understand. We, we kind of coordinate investigations throughout the New England area, but our main focus was, uh, mine at the time, was organized crime and uh, drug enforcement in New York uh, New York City. They have satellite offices up in Westchester and, and out in Long Island also. It's an ugly, ugly business, organized crime. I'm no expert in it, uh, but drug game, I, I do know that very, very well. Before we get into details of your story, tell us about your book. Okay, the book basically tells the story of an informant, uh, how he's developed, and, and eventually at the end how he turns against the agent. I came upon this only because I did extensive work in developing and handling informants during my time in the organized crime division. And in the introduction of the book, I kind of give an example of how good agents, dedicated agents, got involved with informants and through bad luck, lack of common sense or whatever, ended up getting fired or ended up going to jail. So I I take a set of circumstances, peculiarities of the different informants that I handled, and I put together a work of fiction. Obviously, taking one particular one and making nonfiction out of it wouldn't happen because of the uh, they might have relatives although mo- all, the, all the ones I mentioned are, are dead uh, but they might have relatives here and also the FBI would never approve or let you write a book about an actual informant so I took peculiarities put them together and to show basically what could have happened 
through lack of judgment or whatever reason in dealing with an informant and how that informant, like a rat, turned upon the agent when he got cornered. So, uh, Many officers have lost their careers over this. Yes, uh, they did. I, I, I cite uh, there was you know one situation where the... Uh, Many years ago, an agent killed a former, a female informant who he was involved with and who threatened, I guess, to uh, expose him. And another uh, who worked for me in New York, who I considered the epitome of integrity, got transferred to another office, was working drug cases, got involved, took some money and, uh, and jewelry, and ended up going to jail. I could go on with a couple more, but I think probably the most um, noteworthy which I cite briefly, is where in Boston, where um, two ranking bureau officials were fired. One is jailed, is still in jail now, and that's because uh, I think everybody has heard the name James Whitey Bulger. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was uh, John O'Connor was the, the FBI agent that uh, was implicated and convicted and is doing time? Well, John Connolly. John Connolly, that's it. Right. By I the way, I, I, want people to, and, uh, I want people to understand something. Yeah. I'm of Irish descent. My grandparents immigrated from Ireland. Whitey uh-huh. Bulger and this other guy, I don't know either one personally, but they both give Irish people a bad name. I'm right. just going to say that right now. Absolutely. And I, I think a lot of this occurs because, and I've seen it happen, uh, where agents uh, use the term fall in love figuratively with their informant. Yeah. They think they're a good guy. They're nice guys. They're this, they're that. But underneath it all, I think you and I know, both being in law enforcement, I've had considerable experience with informants, that the informant is a street guy. He's a survivor. He's a criminal. And he basically knows more than the person that is handling him. And they're working an angle. Look, I remember being in the academy. And before we get lost in this conversation because it's going to be a deep conversation which by the way you don't want to miss uh the book uh that you've written is available for purchase right now on amazon right amazon.com and if you google the title sanctioned treachery portrait of a drug informant it will come up it's been on about oh i'd say about a month now this is one of those angles of a aspects of law enforcement that Hollywood always gets wrong. Well, I was saying, back in the academy, they, they had old timers teaching us, and I mean way back in the day, about guarding your integrity, about how you had to really be very cautious about things like taking a cup of coffee. And of course, they use extreme examples, but in particular when working with informants, because informants were always working an angle. 95% of the ones I ever worked with were working off a charge. Right, and that's absolutely correct. There are other... um other other angles that they use and uh, or that reasons why they become informant. Like I say, working off a charge probably is the primary one. There are others that want an umbrella. By an umbrella, I mean that they are in, involved in nonviolent criminal activity and don't want to go to jail for it. So they cooperate against people that are involved in violent criminal activity. I give it as an example. The Mafia, La Cosa Nostra, which uh, I worked for probably about 10 years before I got into drug enforcement. And they were members of La Cosa Nostra, one who I personally developed, a uh, member of the Colombo family, excuse me, Gambino family. And I was sure, I wasn't positive, but 
that he, that at the time he was not involved in violent criminal activity, but he was associated with many of the other members who were. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. Many times informants tell you what they want to tell you, and they leave out other pieces of information. They'll, they'll give they, you the beginning of you. the story and, and not the, the, the middle and certainly not the end. Right, right. One of the questions I get all the time is, how can I show my support for law enforcement? Well, we're all busy, but there's something very simple you can do with Facebook. When you see a post that you agree with, that you like, share it to your page. It's just that simple. Think of it this way. Facebook has about 2 billion registered users worldwide, so you can make a difference. And one of the best places to find great posts about law enforcement our Facebook page. Do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Click like and follow. And when you see posts that you like, you agree with, especially episodes of the radio show and podcast, be sure to share it on your social media. Again, do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. We're going to take a short break. We're talking with Tom Vinton. Tom is a retired FBI agent. We return we're going to talk more about his book. We're going to talk more about investigating organized crime, working drug informants, and more. Don't go anywhere. This is the Law Enforcement Today Show. I promise you, we'll be right back. All too often, we find ourselves getting asked, where can I find other great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Because of this, we decided to create our own network of podcasts here on Law Enforcement Today. You can access top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and free app. Head to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, and there you will find our network link where we will continue to add podcasts from first responders and more. Remember, that's letradioshow.com to find out more information about law enforcement today, our podcast network, and to download our free app, letradioshow.com. We love bringing you the Law Enforcement Today show. People say, I can't get it on a station near me. Never fear. You can listen to the show as a podcast for free. Just go to letradioshow.com, click the Be Heard tab, you'll find us there. Or do a Google search for a Law Enforcement Today podcast. Be sure to subscribe today. Remember, it's free. Back to our conversation with Tom Vinton. Tom is an author, author of the book Sanctioned Treachery, a portrait of a drug informant, available for purchase right now on Amazon.com. He's also a retired FBI agent. I never quite know the ranks that you guys in the federal government have, and I don't want to butcher it. What was the rank you retired from? Well, I started up as a uh, as an agent, a brick agent, they call them. And then the next step is supervisor, and then kind of a step above that was coordinating supervisor, a fancy title. And basically that was developed because I was in charge of the New York office's organized crime drug enforcement task force, which combined uh, local and some other federal agencies in 19, this is started about 1982, when uh, the Bureau received concurrent jurisdiction over Title 21 U.S. Code, which is the, covers all of the drug violations. So that would have been it. The next step would have been go to headquarters, and after that, become a supervisor down there, come back, become an assistant agent in charge, so forth, go back down. A lot of traveling and a lot of, uh, not traveling necessarily, but a lot of transfers, which I did not go that route. 
Gotcha. Well, thank you for your service. And I understand you were, uh, I believe, in the military before that. Yes, I spent, um, I graduated from college in 1962 in the College of the Holy Cross. And I went into the Marine Corps. I went through the PLC program and spent three years as a lieutenant and then a captain in an infantry company. Well, thank you for your service in both. And I know that that was a time frame. I, I grew up in Norfolk, Virginia. My dad was a career Navy guy. And right. a lot of the kids I went to school with, I'm not going to get in a long conversation, but a lot of people I went to school with, their fathers were POWs in, in Hanoi in, in uh-huh. Viet, North Vietnam. That whole time period had a profound effect on me as a child and as an adult. And I think it was a big reason why I went into police work. Well... Yeah, I uh, I kind of always wanted to go into police work, although none of my um, none of my relatives were in police work, and I wanted to go into the military. Uh, I'm not sure why, and I picked the Marine Corps because uh, oh, I thought that was the best. And after three years, um, my next uh, it was 1965 when I got out. My next stop would have been uh, Vietnam, and I applied for one job, and that was with the FBI, and I got the job. I kind of felt uh, now that, well, maybe I should have spent a year over there because I spent three years training, and you develop a little loyalty to towards the troops. I shouldn't say a little loyalty towards the troops that you're training and so forth. So on one hand, uh, I regret, in a way, not going. On the other hand, I'm probably fortunate because the uh, shelf life of a uh, lieutenant or a captain in a hot landing zone was very, very slim. So. And, and like a lot of people that serve, and this goes for policing as well, and in federal agencies as well, it's not their call whether they, where they're assigned. And some wind up seeing lots of action, and some don't. And I've had many people apologize for, I was never in a, a hot fire fight either in the military or in police work or any of that nature. And I always say this, it, it wasn't their call, it was someone else's. And we all gave, some to some degree or another. Getting back to our conversation, mm-hmm. You specialized in some areas that, as I said earlier, Hollywood gets so much wrong about policing uh, in, in general. They really get a lot wrong about the FBI. I worked with the FBI when I was detailed at DEA, uh, and there are some great men and women, and, and their reputation has been sullied a bit lately, and that, I want to say, is primarily the admin. It's not the agents on the ground. The agents on the ground are the same dedicated people they've always been. So I don't want anyone to misconstrue that. Uh, but you worked specialized in, in organized crime. And in Baltimore, where I worked, it, it was a high crime area. But they, they never seemed to get a footing in, in Baltimore. and oh, Or if okay. they did, Baltimore, it was such a low, yeah. pro, pro, low profile. I never could quite understand why. I really don't know. Um, like I said, in New York, probably... Uh, Baltimore is somewhat of a microcosm of New York when you look into the yeah. politics of who's running it and so forth. But it just never seemed to get a foothold, maybe because um, the area was more lucrative towards uh, certain types of violations, gambling, prostitution, uh, drugs, and so forth. But yeah, there was plenty of crime to go around Absolutely. In, in New York. And back when I was a kid, uh, there was the impression that in La Costa Nostra, they didn't, and I hate this term, they didn't snitch. Uh, you didn't have informants. And there was a period of time where that may have been true. I doubt it, but that didn't last, did it? No, no. In my in, in my time, uh, like I said, I personally developed an informant in the, in the Gambino family. We had informants in every one of the families. And for reasons that I mentioned before, either it's revenge, 
and maybe they want money because they're not on the winning side of their uh, family or because they're closing in on them and they want to keep themselves out. But nevertheless, they, we, we did have a lot of informants, and that, they basically used the informants to get wiretaps and not to put them into a situation with a recording device or anything like that because that obviously would burn them. But it was mainly um, the wiretaps. There's a, um, a show on Netflix now called Fear City, which is a pretty good summary of how all the uh, the five New York families were taken down through the direction of, at that time, uh, United States Attorney Rudy, Rudy Giuliani and uh, some good supervisors that I know very well in the FBI. So informants were used to pass on information in the mafia regarding the, excuse me, the Cosa Nostra that led to wiretaps or led to the development of other informants. In other words, the informant tells you, go see so-and-so, he's really mad because uh, he didn't get promoted or he didn't get a lot of money that they made, etc., and so forth. So you go out and see that guy. And uh, you pitch him and talk to him, and it doesn't happen over, overnight. It happens many visits. And uh, some people like to do that. I like to do it. And I was honest on the squad once where um, we worked to organize crime, and myself and another agent were detailed with strictly developing informants. I just enjoyed it. I considered it a challenge. Uh, some agents don't don't like to do it. They want to work nine to five. They want to work background cases, uh, and they don't get involved in that. But it I enjoyed a, it. It takes a certain skill set and a certain. Uh, I knew guys that I worked with. I say guys. I say this all the time. That's men and women uh, mm-hmm. that were really good at developing informants. And it was a long. You're right. It's a long. You got to be patient. It takes a while. It takes a long time to get that done. Me, I was never really good at it. I loved working narcotics. I was more of the surveillance guy, the door crasher guy, all those sorts of things. But, uh, you know, Tom, I guess the best definition or explanation I can give, example, is I was like the bull in a china shop. And (laughs) so I wasn't exactly cut out for doing what you do. This is a Law Enforcement Today show. Ever find yourself in a situation where you can't listen to the whole Law Enforcement Today show? Never fear. Past episodes are available online as a podcast and you can listen for free. That's right. The Law Enforcement Today podcast is free. Do a Google search for Law Enforcement Today podcast or simply go to letradioshow.com and click the Be Heard tab. We're talking with Tom Benton, retired FBI agent, author of the book Sanctioned Treachery, a portrait of a drug performance, which is available on Amazon. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-451-8603-800-451-8603-800-451-8603. That's 800-451-8603.
current conversation with Tom Vinton. Tom, retired FBI agent, also author of the book, Sanctioned Treachery, Portrait of a Drug Informant, which is available for purchase right now on Amazon.com. By the way, I love the title of that, Sanctioned Treachery. Did you come up with that yourself, or did someone help you with that? No, I, I came up with that. Dude, that's like a made-for-TV title. I'm like waiting for Val well, Kilmer I, and other I people to jump hope, out. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that that happens. Uh, some of the book sales have been very, uh, very good lately. But you know, through social media, my kids and so forth. So I'm hoping to publicize it a little more at this point. All the authors I've had on, and by the way, I've I said this before. When I retired from police work, I thought I'd write a book because there's so many great stories that you and Ken, and so many are so unusual. Or open an Irish tavern. Well, I didn't do the tavern. Turns out I was brilliant not to do that. And secondly, I tried writing and just getting started was difficult. I'll get a page or two done and then lose interest. I, I just couldn't do it. My hat's off to people that can. Well, I was a, a kind of a voracious reader, you might say, back um, back during my latter years in the FBI. And, you know, reading books like, um, I don't know if you read right, Lawrence Sanders, Anderson Tape, so forth, Nelson DeVille's books, uh, Robert Ludlum and James yep. Patterson, and so forth. So um, I said, geez, I think I can write a, you know, write a book. And I bought probably almost every book you could find on how to write fiction, uh, self-editing fiction, so forth. And I would write in my spare time, and every time I'd look over it, i said, oh, this is really isn't any good. And I'd edit, re-edit, re-edit. So it wasn't something where I woke up one morning and said, I think I'll write a book. It, uh, it took a lot of work, and then piecing together a lot of the idiosyncrasies of the informants that I dealt with, making a story out of it, having different twists in it, and so forth. So... It was a nice project I had, especially in the winter when you can't play golf. So. I hope it does really well for you, and I, I hope that something comes out of it movie-wise, because the reality is we need a lot more in Hollywood that actually portrays the reality of what happens. I, I Granted, I understand you've got to have fiction involved. They have to have drama. They have to have all these things to make it sellable for films. I get that. I understand it. But so much of what I see nowadays, especially from American producers, is just nowhere even close. You're right. You're right. And it's, uh, oh, I mean, it's, you know, you, you know uh, it shows shootouts going on for five minutes, cars yeah. exploding, et cetera, et cetera. And it, they've gotten away, I think, from the old, uh, if you want to call it Humphrey Bogart movies, um, where there were, you know, shows what detective work is kind of really like. Because that's really what most of it is. I, I try to describe police work, at least my experience of police work to people, and, and I tell them, and I don't know where I got this from, but it was vast amounts of sheer boredom followed by just moments of extreme life and death adrenaline you're right you're right it's almost like a uh, an airline pilot told me uh, once he says you know for the most part 99 percent of sheer boredom you know flying a plane to be <laughs> but be prepared for that uh, two minutes of uh, sheer terror yeah and and by the way the going up and down up and down up and down adrenaline wise i think it really takes a toll on you psychologically and physically i think a lot of us are much older than we appear yeah, yeah, I think you're right on that. If and not on the outside, on the inside. Certainly on the inside. My wife will tell you that we have a little routine when we go out to a restaurant. She's like, she knows which seat is the right one for me. <laughs> she always like picks it out. And I don't know the FBI like I do uh, police. And, and there are a lot of similarities. There's a lot of differences. One of the particular differences is you guys, the joke was you guys had the resources and the time. You get to pick the cases you worked on quite often. We didn't. That's true. That's uh, that's very true. Uh, we always 
would work long term on one case or two cases uh, targeting one individual. A squad may, uh, you know, consisting of maybe 18 agents might work a few small cases, but would basically target one or two individuals. And, and this concept came about during the time when I was in. Uh, be honest with you, when David Hoover was alive, everybody wanted statistics, statistics. And they realized that quality is better than quantity, and especially in the organized crime arena. You didn't want to just lock up a bunch of low-level guys. You wanted to go after the enterprise. And so the whole focus on investigations shifted at that time. And you didn't have to basically worry about inspectors coming in and say, well, wait a minute, you only got three convictions last year. And you say, okay, well, but next year we're going to have 20 because we're wrapping up the whole enterprise. Gotcha. How was it for you when you were a young agent? They said, okay, you're going to be assigned to working mafia. Well, I, uh, I kind of volunteered for it. I was assigned to a squad that involved counterintelligence, which was very slow-moving. And uh, it wasn't really my cup of tea. I wanted something a little more, you know, more active. And so a friend of mine was on the organized crime squad. He says, come down here. We're looking for a guy to speak to the supervisor. And, and that was it. And uh, I, I really, I enjoyed it. Um, you know, it's kind of a cat and mouse game at sometimes. And isn't it funny how, and maybe it's just me that sees this, but when you watch any movies nowadays uh, that involve, I'll give you an example, Goodfellas, which is one of my favorite movies of all time. It right. really is. I love that movie. I love the music. I love everything about it. But mm-hmm. they always portray the FBI agents and police as absolute bumbling, stumbling idiots. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. If that was the case, no one would ever go to jail. Right, right. But no, it, I think that's that, part of the media. They, uh, you know, they, they want to do that. And then they, sometimes they glorify the bad guys like uh, like in that movie. Well, they do. And and this will go into our next conversation. One of, there's been a love affair, for lack of better words, I don't understand about America. It's going far back as Bonnie and Clyde and John Dillinger. Uh, back in those days, back in the, the FBI's formative early days that I just don't quite understand. I don't understand it either. You can go back to, you know, like you say, John Dillinger and so forth. And then more recently, you look at John Gotti and some of his associates. They were, you know, they're, they're glorified in the media. Uh, and he but, was ruthless. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm no expert, but I've heard stories about some of the things that he and his associates were involved in. And they were ruthless, bloodthirsty, absolute murdering scumbags. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you don't see it too much on the drug end, but when you see a person like, uh, remember the name Nikki Barnes, who was a um, major heroin importer and dealer in Harlem, Uh uh, he was kind of looked at as almost a a folk hero, you know. And I don't know how it gets to that stage from hardened criminal, but somehow it does. I'm sure if we thought about it enough, we'd come up with several other examples. I think part of it, Tom, is that what they do is... And they, they're still doing it today, the, the news media, that is. They ignore the, the parts of the story that make the villain look like a bad guy. And right. they love to make the government agents, police, federal agents, whatever, look as if they are the ones to fear. There's an old saying, the greatest trick ever played was when the, the devil convinced everybody he didn't exist. Well, I think that's been trumped by uh, the greatest trick is convincing people that MS-13, the mafia, Hell's Angels, everybody else is less of a threat than the police. Right. I love that quote. I think, uh, I forget the name of the movie it came from, but uh, it's a good quote about the devil. 
like Mimis thirteen, I don't believe that that gets as much publicity as he uh, much publicity as it should have. Um, there are other arrests that come down that don't seem to get any publicity. And without getting political, there there are certain uh, events uh, that have recently surfaced, and uh, the media refuses to even look into it. So, and that's one of the things: uh, politics and police generally don't mix. Uh, people need to understand, and I consider myself to be fairly conservative but on some issues i'm what people consider a moderate in other issues i might be considered a liberal but most police i know have and this goes for federal agents as well have very little trust for partisan politics as a whole this is law enforcement Today show we're right. talking with tom vinton retired fbi agent author of a great book as well we'll talk more about that when we return the place to be online is our facebook page do a search on facebook for law enforcement today radio show you'll get access to unique news articles editorials and so much more that's law enforcement today radio show on facebook don't go anywhere we'll be right back Attention real estate investors. Do you need cash immediately? If you own one or multiple rental properties, you can use your equity to get cash out fast. The best part is we don't need tax returns or even a good credit score. At America's Loan Source, we are not a bank and we don't have bank rules. We make the decisions to loan you money and there's no limit how much we can give you. Some clients have gotten as much as $500,000 or more within days. Use the money any way you want. If you own one rental property or a hundred and COVID has left you in a cash crunch, we can help you turn your equity into fast cash. Call now for details and close in as little as 10 days and get the cash you need. 800-296-1242. That's 800-296-1242. Back to our conversation with Tom Vinton. He is a retired FBI agent. He's also author of the book, which is available on Amazon.com right now. It is called Sanctioned Treachery, Portrait of a Drug Informant. And by the way, working drug informants, no easy task, and uh, some of them are, are phenomenal, some are horrible, but none of them are totally trustworthy, even the ones with, with great credibility. We always had to verify the information ourselves. We couldn't act. Like you said earlier, you get information from an informant, and it'd be used for a wiretap, uh, because you can't go on that information alone. That's something Hollywood gets wrong all the time, right. all the time. Well, you know, when we... Um kind of not merged, but we received concurrent jurisdiction with DEA, we found that our informant policies were very different. Uh, the FBI would try not to give up an informant, use them for wiretaps, or get information regarding other people. DEA's informants mo- mostly came from a guy being arrested and said, okay, I'm going to work off my charge. So there's no no long-term inform- informants in DEA. You right. had to produce or you went to jail. And that's what we encountered, working drug enforcement on a street level, that's what we encountered. And when I worked with the DEA, we had a little bit of informants, but most of our information was gathered the old-fashioned way, uh, boots on the ground. It was right. Right. it was old-fashioned detective work. It's shoe leather. And you didn't you didn't make the cases from the office. You had to go on the street. You, right. And there were times I left my wife and said, I'll, at 8 o'clock in the morning, see you tonight at 4, and I didn't get back till 8 o'clock the next day. Because right. once... 
the surveillance started and they started moving, you couldn't break off. You had to right, stay with it. Right. It's just the way it was. And that's thing, another thing I think Hollywood gets wrong all the time as well. In your book, which is fiction derived from fact, which is the only way to write real police type novels, if you ask me. It's either straight fiction or it's from fact, because otherwise, there's too many people to be harmed. And one of the cases that I'm sure you've used for inspiration uh, is the Whitey Bulger case. Right. I, you know, Whitey is in, of course, you being Irish would know it, Whitey Bulger, the Irish name. He was part of the Irish, what you call the Irish Mafia up in Boston. It was equivalent to or better than or more vicious than the actual Mafia. So Whitey became an informant. He didn't did it to keep himself safe. He would give up every Italian that he knew, but he would not mention anything about his own activities. And... The agent handling him and supervisors, they thought Whitey was so great because he was giving up people around him that when people came in and said, wait a minute, this guy's uh, from other informants say, go after this guy, he's a killer, he's no good, he's a crime family boss, although it's Italian, they refused to believe it. In other words, the guy was so productive that you didn't want to hear about other criminal activities that he was involved in, and eventually the whole thing blew up, and the people that, uh, when I say blew up, it came to surface that Whitey and uh, had been doing ABCD, the FBI knew about it, they let this go rather than put him in jail, and so the whole roof came down, and unfortunately, a uh, you know, couple of good agents, a supervisor, uh, not using good sense, and figuring that the end uh, justified the means or whatever. Um, like I said, uh, John Connolly's still in jail. Um, the other fellow, uh, John Morris, is the supervisor who I liked. I knew him. I just could not even, as another person, you would never expect that he would be involved in condoning this stuff. And, uh, and then the assistant agent in charge, I think he was fired over it. So it was a, it was a terrible mess. It was a black eye for the FBI. And, uh, where I think up until this date, it's hard for the FBI, FBI to develop a good working relationship with the state police up there. Yeah, I, it takes a long time. I'll be honest with you, Tom, in my opinion, we're still dealing with the ghosts, for police that is, of, of Selma, Alabama and Birmingham, Alabama from the 1960s that you can't seem to break away from. So I understand I'm not saying I condone anything, but I do understand why that's happened. One of the things that people seem to love are these conspiracy theories. And I've seen them about Waddy Bulger. They're like, well, how can the guy be on a lamb and on the loose for so long? And the FBI must have known. They must have covered up. Did you encounter any of like, well, you knew the agents involved and you were dumbfounded by it from basically what you said? Yeah, I, I, I was. Um, and... I don't think there was there was no evil intention there. They weren't taking money. They weren't through this. They were just so happy and engaged in what he was giving them in cases they were able to make. They couldn't see the forest through the trees, if you want to say that. And as far as when he was a smart guy, and I think he had planned his departure with his girlfriend for when the time came. And, yeah. you know, he was picked up out in uh, California somewhere. And that was a major future of investigation. They had agents working full-time on that because it's a, 
you know, it was a black eye to the FBI. The number one, he turned out to be really the bad guy, and number two, they couldn't find him. It was it, it's kind of it was kind of a black eye for the FBI, and then all the publicity that uh, that went around, circled around that up in Boston area, did, didn't didn't do the bureau any good. And plus, people, no matter how much evidence they're presented, still want to believe these these far fetched, crazy conspiracy theories that so and so is involved. And I always say this: there's an old saying, and I think this came from the outlaw motorcycle world: is that three men can keep a secret as long as two are dead. And <laughs> I'd say conspiracy theories you mean that everyone that was approached about this blank blank whatever example it is agreed to do it and won't talk someone's talking right right and that's and never occurred there was no conspiracy theory and you know the old saying is too if you have uh, the the more people there are involved in a conspiracy the less chance it has to succeed. Right, so. or even get off the ground. And that's the right. that's number one thing I say about the 9-11 conspiracy theories. Look, there's no way everybody, thousands of people, would, would agree to this. Just, they're not doing it. Mm-hmm. Right. it. It makes perfect sense to you and I, but people who believe this stuff, you're not getting through to them. Uh, so, in closing, writing your book has to help. Well... The, would you say who would it have to help, or I'm, I would think it would have to help. Yes, I you know I I think the people that would enjoy it most would be either active or former law enforcement, and uh, it it kind of gives an insight into the mentality of an informant who. Excuse me, you're from uh, you're from Baltimore, and you're familiar with I'm sure policy betting numbers operations. Oh yeah, and, so forth, and how he evolves from a numbers operator sees greed becomes a, a, a drug dealer, gets caught by DEA, gets, uh, after they work him for a while, he gets turned over to an FBI agent, and then he decides to set up a bunch of drug dealers and so forth, and in the meanwhile, then he is involving uh, self in actually selling her heroin himself. So, And towards the end, it all collapses on him after he sets up a mafia guy, etc., and it is something that I look at. It, this could have happened. It's something. It's uh, it's fiction, but it could very well be a nonfiction because I've seen cases where agents, aside the ones that got in trouble, could have gotten in trouble without the proper coaching uh, from their supervisor, their partner, or whatever. Because you get blinded sometimes. You say, wow, this guy is a really, really good guy. He's a great guy. And you, like I said, fall in love with him. He's my guy. And you give him your phone number. He calls you at night and so forth. But uh, underneath it all, there's a lot of larceny, I think, in the hearts of all of them. And if trapped, then I can kind of cite a few examples here and in the beginning of the book. If trapped, they're going to turn on that agent so quickly or that police officer so quickly, ruin his career, send him to jail, ruin his marriage, or whatever, and they don't give a about that. Absolutely not. And if you allow that to happen, give them an inch, they'll take a mile without a doubt. Again, the name of your book is? Sanctioned Treachery and the subtitle Portrait of a Drug Informant. It's available for purchase right now on Amazon. Dot com. Tom Vinton, I want to thank you so much for your service, both in Marine Corps and the FBI, and for writing the book and taking time to talk to us about it here on our Law Enforcement Day show. Very much appreciated. Well, thank you for having me. There's only one official Facebook page. What you do, you do a search on Facebook for Law Enforcement Today radio show. 
click like and follow. There you'll find updates about upcoming episodes of the radio show. You can contact me. We also find unique, one-of-a-kind editorials and news articles. That is our Facebook page, Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Be sure to click like and follow. We'll see you there. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today show. We've got another great guest heading your way next week. Don't miss it. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.